0: When you go now and you believe that people, you know, not because you're CEO, but they welcome you and they value you still, right? And they ring you up for advice, whether it's from the army or from the industry. Right? I would believe that uh, what you've left behind is a legacy. If that is positive and you made a difference in people's lives, that that really is success. Right?
1: Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Contramines. In this episode. Vignesh and I are in conversation with Colonel Vijay Chadda. Colonel Chadda served in the Indian Armed Forces for more than two decades, following which in 1992, he transitioned into the private sector. After holding leadership positions in various large multinationals in the logistics, travel and tourism space, he became the CEO of the Bharati Foundation in 2008. Over the course of the next 11 years, Colonel Chadda was instrumental in the Bharti Foundation's endeavor of setting up schools in villages and managing them, working with government schools, all in pursuit of access to quality education of underprivileged children. Today, he serves as the CEO of the Air Pollution Action Group, a foundation set up to assist the central and state governments in India's fight against air pollution. Colonel Chadda spoke to us about his time at the National Defense Academy how leadership principles don't change whether you are on the battlefield or in the boardroom and his thoughts on what ails the primary school system in India. As always, we have shared selected links and show notes from this episode on the ContraMinds website. You can check it out at www.contraminds.com. So without further delay, here is our conversation with Colonel Vijay Chatter. Hi, Colonel Ch- uh, Vijay Chadda, Great to have you as a guest and thanks for taking time to talk to us, sir.
0: Th- thanks, Swami. Thanks, Vignesh. Just Vijay will do. That's Colonel <laughs> Vijay Chhada is just where I am the official title. I'm very happy to be called Vijay and uh, and thank you so much for having me here and giving me an opportunity to share my thoughts. Uh,
1: thanks, uh, thanks, Vijay. Uh, I want to start this conversation, Vijay, with uh, something that I... Saw you talk about and uh, uh, which I found very inspiring. Which is in 1968, you actually went into the NDA, right? And uh, uh, you know, what were the learnings that something you had there for life that you then had, you know, you followed it throughout your career? So, what was it like at the NDA, and what are the learnings that you had for life?
0: Wow. 1968, that's 53 years ago. But I mean, you know, in those days, uh, you know, we really didn't have too many career choices. When you're in school, you know, you, you either aspire to become a doctor or an engineer, right? Or you, you know, look at going into the armed forces or, you know, the government service. There, even the uh, aspirants for IS, IFS were, were actually lesser in number. It was uh, the bright ones became doctors and engineers. And then you know, it was the armed forces and NDA was, you know, where you appeared in school. So I mean, I, it was one of those macho things. So from our batch, I think we had quite a, I mean, we, have, we were in a co-ed school in Delhi. I, I don't have anyone in the armed forces I mean, from my family that way. My grandfather was uh, in the British Indian army, but I mean, I never knew him. He died before I was born. So, I just, you know, went went to appear for the NDA examination with a whole bunch of guys. Got selected and uh, you know, landed up in NDA. But when you say, what did it do to me? I think uh, age 16, you pass out of NDA at 19 and then you go to your respective academies, whether Air Force, Army or Navy, to do your final training before you become a commissioned officer. So I joined the Army, so I went to Terradone. But I think those three years in NDA made a boy into a man right clearly right it gave us everything i i would i would say that you know like when you all go to college you remember your alma mater your graduation degree so along with our academics we did whole whole host of other stuff around you know the armed forces training physical weapon training etc cetera, etc cetera. but more importantly you know the instilling of values the uh you know the grooming telling you what needs to be done i mean it's an it's an outstanding institution i mean it's a it's something where i believe every youngster should go and spend one year the first and second term i mean your life will change it's one of the finest institutions in the world I mean, hats off to those who built it in india i mean that's what has been the you know bedrock of our armed forces you know it's produced officers for generations right and uh, the spirit the camaraderie that it builds up is unbelievable i mean you know it's it's, it's like like the alumni of uh, of a great school you know that kind of bonding which you can, don't find anywhere else right? so so it's not only that it made you physically stronger it made you mentally stronger it it gave you you know your value systems in life it taught you so much right? so, and, and that really is what uh, prime me for life if I say that.
1: So when you really say every youngster should go through this, what really was the discipline and regimen that you thought uh, was something that left an indelible memory in what uh, you carried forward in life?
0: You see, clearly, one of course, there are learnings in terms of, you know, how do you adhere to discipline, a code of conduct, most importantly, right, a regimen, right, but more importantly, the... uh, the uh, spirit of camaraderie that it builds, and the fact that you know they push you to extremes and and then you realize that you know there is nothing that you can't do. I mean you know, the weakest of people also become strong because of the of the training. So really, you know uh, what it does to the mind is amazing. So it gives you a sense of discipline, it gives you a sense of ethos. Of course, there is you know the the patriotism that it instills in you because, you see so much of what your you know your predecessors have done and contributed to the nation. What is taught to you? I mean, it's it's a kind of an overall grooming and you know uh, development of your personality as an individual. It's not about the armed forces or anything else. It's about you know what it does to you, gives you as an individual.
1: So, what are the leadership traits? And you are somebody who uh, you know who was in the armed forces for 20 years. Then you move to a corporate job. Uh, you know and uh, in the travel and hospitality industry so you are somebody who transitioned like what you call from the uh you know from the army to the civil street that you talk about right so therefore uh, what are the leadership traits that you learnt at the nda at the military which you applied in your corporate job which uh, which is something that you are very proud about
0: you see uh Possibly this is not what many people would talk about, but I would believe that leadership, wherever you may be, right, it's same. Leadership is leadership, right? You got to you got to lead your teams, you got to lead your people, right? So while they say that no, in the army leadership is different because you know you give a word of command and they're supposed to obey that word of word of command, right? So that is just one part of leadership, right? The other part of leadership is where people will follow you with blind faith. That is a leadership that you've got to build and that's a trust that you've got to gain by what you do. You know, There's leadership in battle when you say, okay, follow me, guys, and they know that we are. many of us are going to get shot. Right? Some of us will not be alive, right? That's where everyone follows, right? But for that to come on a day-to-day basis, right, you've got to get accepted as a leader. Right? And it's about how you lead your people, how they see you. What I was taught was that one, you know, we say, in the army, we say the Indian army always leads from the front. And statistics also define that because when you look at the casualties that we've suffered in our wars, in Kargil, in Sri Lanka, in in counterinsurgency, right? Wherever the officer-to-man ratio of casualties in the Indian army is probably the highest in the world. That shows that our, our, our officers lead from the front, right? The other thing is, as a leader, you know, you don't ask someone to do what you yourself would not do. Right? And the third and most important trait is integrity, transparency, and honesty. Right? you want to gain the trust of your people. Right? And you have to be willing to learn you just because you're a leader doesn't mean that you know everything you have the ability to lead probably it's an authority vested in you even in corporate when i became a ceo i mean i was a ceo so you damn well listen to me yeah i'm i'm your boss right, right. but i landed up in corporate as a greenhorn and i mean i would used to dabble in the share market i used to read about read the economic times i had to read news in those days Nothing was online. You read magazines and, you know, you you read newspapers, right? So you had some idea. I had a, I mean, uh, I would say I was, I was numerate, right? I won't say I was a a financial wiscuit, but uh, but I understood finances, right? But uh, most importantly, I had to learn everything from scratch, right? How do you do that? There you are. You're, you're the, I mean, in those days a general manager, now you call, they transition to being called, you know, presidents or CEOs and or whatever, but there you are, you're the number one guy there, right? And there are a host of businesses which are there, all of which you got to learn from scratch. Yes, of course, before we joined, because I was joining a, a company and I was recruited, so I did an induction of a week in each business, right? So whereas DHL was one of our divisions, so I I went with the courier boys to deliver packages. I went to the operation center to see how how packages are dealt with. I went to the airport to see how how loads are quote, et cetera et cetera. You went you went to the customs clearance wing to see how cargo is cleared et cetera. So while you do all that, but when you sit down to run business and you give instructions, and when you're going to start questioning people who are actually the the leaders of the business, so how do you do that? So that was the greatest challenge, and you know how do you adapt yourself to being a leader and yet not being ashamed of saying, guys, I need to learn, and you you got to teach me, right? I will teach you some things that you probably don't know, but I will learn a lot from you also. Right? So, the 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 ability to to uh, to accept that yes, there are things that I don't know, and I need to learn that is also one of the very important traits. And of course, the most important thing is is the the ability to identify and utilize talent that you have at your disposal.
2: Wow, that's a that's a great answer, Kandil Chadda. I think as a follow-up, I would like to ask that, you know, based on what you just described, leadership almost seems like a fine line between being empathetic and being decisive. So based on your own background, being in the armed forces, and, uh, you know, transitioning into civil society, as you say, uh, what are some things that you had to unlearn and you had to relearn to actually ensure that as a culture, the values are upheld, and uh, you're also growing in the right direction.
0: So, so to be to be honest, Vignesh, like you know, like I said earlier, also, you know, I did not find the transition in terms of leadership very difficult because I didn't have any major issues on which one had to compromise. People, leader, you come out from the armed forces and you come to civil street, you have got to compromise. Right? I don't believe that that I had to. Really sit down and you know grapple with my value system to say, ki, you know, this is going to be a, I knew it's going to be a big change. I knew that things are going to be different. It's not the armed forces any longer, right? In the armed forces, you have a degree of protection. Here you're on your own. If I've been given a job, I can lose that job also, right? And I've got to deliver, right? And uh, but one really did not have to make many compromises. My leadership style did not change, right? Maybe I had to understand that I have got to, to you know, it's not only really all about authority. It's also about, you know, uh, leadership through different ways. Yeah? Authority always remains because you, you've you been designated leader, right? But uh, it doesn't need to be author- authoritarian. And, and between decisive and empath- empathy, right? I don't believe, you know, there is a choice to be made. Yeah? As a leader, you always need to have empathy. And you have to be decisive. You are made a leader because ultimately, you know, it's a decision that you take which will make a difference. Yes, you you would get involved when there are key operations happening and you would, you know, oversee implementation, but someone else is implementing on ground, right? But the key thing, whether in war or in business, right, is the decision that the leader takes and how he carries forward that decision, right? And empathy is a must because everywhere, you know, you're dealing with human beings, right? Today, of course, there's a machine component also to leadership. But when I came came to the to Simi Street from the army, it was it was still all human beings. Right? Computers were relatively few and unknown, and you know, they were in a different room with an air conditioner, right? And they were there for data whenever you sought it. It was not part of our lives that like we're using it today, right? But clearly. People are people, right? Even if you're in the army, we have to remember that our wives, children, families are civilians, right? You get posted to a Delhi or a Bombay, you live outside, you're still dealing with, with people outside. Yeah? You still have those problems, right? So so it's not that you're always insulated, right? You know what's going on outside, you know that, that there are areas where, you know, your, your telephone line is not working in those days. I mean, telephone was a big thing. You people probably will not know, but you know, 80s, 90s, you couldn't get a phone collection for the uh, for the love of life. You know, if you had a phone connection, you were a VIP. And if that doesn't work, the the MTNL guy, the telephone guy, if he had to come, right? I mean, until unless you uh, gave him some gratification, you're not going to set a phone right. Yeah. So. Those kind of things would happen because you want your phone to work, right? So so nothing should actually shock you, right? Because you knew that these things happen. It's a question of how you use it, right? Do you use it to run your business? Are you breaking are you breaking law? Are you conforming to rules and regulations? I mean, I made a point that, you know, we will not compromise on 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 rules and regulation. We will not compromise on personal integrity, right? And when we run business, also, we will not compromise on trust with our customers and with our people. But do you have to? You know, did I did I not know that my customs clearance team, right? I mean, I didn't know how to handle it, right? That uh, they said just sign chits for expense because they had to bribe those guys who were doing clearance, right? The standard job. Now I don't know. I can't. I have to trust them. Are they actually paying that money where is it going because i would check with people find out what's happening so either i stop business or I allowed it to happen so what i would do is that you know, it's stupid but say how do i do? delegate it give it to the accounts team say there's there has to be at least internally some transparency that is whether this is where the money is going this is where people are recommending it's not that you know we are being taken for a ride so in those days whether it was a travel business or a cargo business, it was fairly porous. A lot of airlines would give you, would give you kickbacks in cash. So I said, what to you do it? They said, no, we won't give check. So, so I told the my, you know, my uh, CFO or head, you know, the head of finance that please keep a <laughs> a notebook which, which could have killed us. Note it, and whenever you know. Appoint a committee to take cognizance of it and then destroy it. You know, so that you have it's, it's not just one person handling it, right? So there is it's it's the organization which is handling it because and when I'm talking airlines, I'm talking of of international airlines too. So that was a norm. So what do you do? You know? Was that right? I don't think that was right. But all those things change over a period of time. Like right? in today's world, governance is a different story. In those days, governance was yeah. Another story.
2: Absolutely. Which, uh, as a follow-up, uh, I would like to take you back to 1997, uh, which was a major turning point uh, in your life and which I believe you have stated that, has changed, that did change your life forever. So I want to know, can you tell our listeners what happened and what went through your mind during that time and what were some of the goals that you set for yourself then and how they've played out today?
0: But 1997 is you're talking about the time when I donated that car, right? Which I won, no?
2: Yeah, correct,
1: correct. Yeah,
0: yeah, okay, all right. No, no, this was a, we used to, we used to have these travel industry conventions which were big ones always, and a lot of fun, partying, you know, good times. And in, in one of those conventions, I was suddenly told that, you know, you're being called on stage because you won this car. And I said, I couldn't believe it because I'd never won anything in my life. Even if I'm one of two, you pull out a shit, you know, it can't be me. So some of the other convinced, I was convinced that no, there's something wrong. Maybe it's because, uh, you know, though the, the sponsors vehemently denied. But I believe that I was being given that prize. And I didn't want to take it. Mm-hmm. And so it's there that I asked them this question that, you know, say supposing I don't... Uh, Want this and I don't want the car. Will you give me cash in lieu of car? Said, yeah, yeah, of course, no problem. Then, of course, I had to, my wife was there, I had to talk to her. We came back home, we had two daughters. So we said, Look, we won this car. It was a air conditioned Maruti in those days, 97. I mean, that was uh, I mean, almost a <laughs> top end kind of car you know, and worth over close to two and a half lakhs. So so I, so I, I, I told the kids that, Look, there's something wrong. And, you know, I think, you know, at least they're giving us money. So let's keep half the money and, you know, we can uh, donate the other half of the money. So first I convinced them. Then suddenly they said, why half? If you're not happy, then, you know, let us, let us donate the full car, The whole, you know, the family came on board and they said, let's uh, give this to charity. So that's when we started looking, when you give it to charity, what to do, that we started looking at. And I said, "My my heart is in, you know, Education of underprivileged children. I do believe that that's an area where all of us need to help, and that's where the donations went in two tranches. You know, and uh, we decided to donate that money. That actually, you know, opened my eyes in sense that you know you can make a difference to people's lives. So it took a couple of years more when I became financially comfortable and and felt that you know uh, it's time that now I started uh, you know doing something to give back. In near full time, right? So, I was trying to do it on my own, but then the Bharti Foundation opportunity came, which was a, a lottery again. Like I said, life is all about lotteries. You know, I spoke about it's the lottery of birth as to where we all are born, which you know makes all the difference. And then that's what I say that for people who've been born in the wrong place, we 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 all have to make to work hard to ensure that they are not denied the privileges that we got in terms of education Because well, that's what's going to make a difference that's what's going to give them the opportunities in life and that's why i believe that you know primary schooling government schooling you know access and quality is so very important that you know millions of kids you know, who are denied that schooling you know, look at what they're losing out in life why should they not have an equal opportunity to everyone else and that's that's what needs to be done so that's what it is i know this is all of Matter of chance, matter of luck, you know, a job like Bharti Foundation where I would have done for free when Sunil, my boss, Mr. Sunil Mittal said, Vijay, you you always say Vijay took such a huge salary cut to come and do this. I said, Sunil, you paid me a salary, which was more than what I ever expected. I would do this for free. So I was still very, very fortunate that you could do so much good and yet get paid for it and run an organization, be part of corporate
1: so vijay uh, you talk about uh, the school education in our country and uh, you you have said that you know it is in a crisis critically ill in an icu uh, requires life support uh, can you elaborate more on this uh, given the fact that you ran such a huge institution with across six states so what ails school education and what are the challenges you see i
0: think we have lots of things around school education. And unfortunately, you know, I still believe that you know, we, are, we are not doing enough to, to set it right. You know? So there are the very fancy schools right, to which a mini-school you know, percentage of our population can get in or can afford to pay. Right? Then there are private schools, so to say, right, where a lot of people pay and they give uh, you know, top dollar to put the children in that school right and then there's 75 around percent of our schools which are in the government system yeah. where the majority of children are you know uh, in our country go to so when you look at the quality of schooling right across including the top most schools i do believe it is what it is but you know there you can still get through because you know the quality schools still have a lot going for them. There are still good teachers and bad teachers. Right? There are still parents who can give a lot of inputs to their children. Children, you know, in these private schools in big cities, children go for tuitions. They do this. There are lots of ways in which their, you know, uh, lack of right things happening in the school gets made up. Right? It cannot happen in the government schools. If the school is not good enough. Parents there are, you know, they are earning a livelihood. Besides, most of the kids are first-generation learners. The so parents cannot give them those kind of inputs at home. Right? So where do they go? And uh, what is a problem? The qual- you know, the teaching profession, the quality of teachers that we have in our country. Right? I would believe a teaching profession has should be right on top. But unfortunately, teaching is a fallback profession. There are very few who come to teaching because of their love for teaching or their wanting to become a teacher. Right? There are. I'm not saying there are no. But basically, it's because of lack of other options or because this is an easy option for for a wife who's married, and does a B.A. The husband is working so I can teach. My children go to school with me. Various other reasons. Government teachers, great job. Government teachers are probably, you know, of course, there are a lot of temporary teachers, but the permanent government teachers are very well-paid nowadays in comparison to other private school teachers. They are amongst the highest paid. Leave aside the elite schools, government teachers are highest paid. So there's no reason. And yes, yes, absolutely. And the selection system is not easy. So definitely, there are a lot of good teachers in the system, but somehow, the way we are organized and structured, majority of schools are not running the way they should. Right? The schools are dysfunctional. It cannot happen. There are some states which are doing better than others. And within that, there are some schools which are doing better than others. So there are a lot of government schools which are very good. I think, you know, you look at Delhi government schools. When I was in school, a lot of toppers used to come from the Delhi government schools. The current government there, I mean, I'm not a political guy. I don't, I don't you know, support anyone. I have no issues with anyone because for me, politicians are the same. But... Since we work with them, I do believe that the Delhi government, current government, has done a lot of good work with the government schools, right? So, and in Kerala, a state like Kerala, it was always good. Himachal was a good state. There are a lot of states which are doing good work. There are a lot of schools within other states where schools are running well. But every government school needs to run well. And every government school should at least give adequate quality. When I say adequate quality, it means... I mean, both of you. I mean, I, I now have grandchildren or my grandchildren. <clears throat> we should be happy to send our grandchildren to the government school, to the neighborhood school. As opposed to, you know, you know going to a dune school or a sanar or a modern school or a, you know, Sri Ram school in Delhi or, you know, Don Bosco or St. Xavier's stuff like that. Why not? It's possible.
2: Right?
0: So if you put pressure and government schools start working, And people can send their children to government schools. Look at the load it would take off. One, look at the benefit that would accrue. Because majority of children will start getting good basic school education. That would mean that they would be primed to explore opportunities in life. Even in villages, you'll be surprised. eh? Poor parents, those who can't afford. Just because a school calls itself private and English medium. And the kid has to wear a tie. They send the child there to pay a thousand rupees a month and not to the government school, even though the, meet, the quality of instruction would be equally bad right? because it's a private school. Why should they do that? Look at the amount of money which can then be saved and used for other purposes. Look at cities, even, even in, a, in a Mumbai, in a Delhi, in a Calcutta, in Hyderabad, Bangalore, Chennai, Lucknow, you know, A, B cities. Right? There are enough and more parents who are. Uh, what do you say? Depriving themselves or their families of something to pay the children's school fees. If they can save that school fees, send the kid to a neighborhood school, knowing fully well that he's assured the you know, same quality of education. May not be a Dune school, may not be a MOD school, but at least a B grade public school, right? If you can assure that, and and that's what you know most parents are getting, right? And you get that in a government school or better. And the system puts pressure for those schools to perform. Look at the difference that can be made. This is a—it's a long process. There's no overnight solution.
2: Right?
0: People say simple things. Like, I love guys. I, love, I heard things. Make it mandatory that every government official, right, has to send their ward to a government school. Think of a a district a, a district magistrate sitting, you know, in, uh, in any district and his or her son or daughter goes to that government school, right? In that district, children. The ADM, the district magistrate, the Tessildar, the Sarpanch. Can you imagine that government school not functioning? We have access. We have schools. Government schools are on enough land. Infrastructure is there. Teachers need to be there. They need to be made to come to school. right? And they need to be made to teach and perform. And be made accountable. Right? So at every level, if if <laughs> if Sarkari, Of ka bacha, Central School is a government school. They work so well. Right? There's so many other versions of government schools which are running, right? Which do well. So why can't a normal government school do well? So we have to work to change that. So that's the only I mean I believe that's the only answer for our nation because you start doing that. The children have access to schools. They have access to quality education. They can make their lives right kind of instruction happening in schools. They become aware. You know that's the way for the nation to change. Not 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 the way we are going. I think mean, we need to. You know, at least the 20-80 ratio of government schools today 20 percent working, 80 not working. That has to change to 80-20. And that's my belief. And I believe that. Everyone can make a difference. So when, when people say, hey, what should we do? I want to start a school in a village. I tell them, don't start. See, go to your village, interact with the government school, see what you can do to make that government school better. Right? Because everything that we do as individuals, we can't assure sustainability. But a government system is an institution. right? And that can run forever. That even a Bharti Foundation, a Tata Trust and all, you can do only this much if you want to do sustainability forever, but you can't impact the masses. To impact the masses, we have to look at how can we make you know, the government system work.
1: So, so you are somebody uh, you know uh, who adopted almost thousand three hundred government schools, and uh, you know uh, you started bringing that change. So you are not somebody who just talks about it, but you actually went out and did it so what are the challenges that did you face there and tell us some uh, interesting uh, you know uh, tips for actually saying how should it be done you are somebody who's done it so one is you know we were we didn't adopt
0: these you know 1000 plus schools this is what we call you know the quality support program that the foundation runs along with government schools right? so adoption is a different thing where it, you know, you take over a school. We didn't take over school. We did initially take over 49 schools in uh, the district of... Uh, in Aamir, in in, in, uh, in Rajasthan, right? Where we took over the buildings, we put in our teachers and ran those schools for close to 12 years. And we did believe that that was not the right way to go. Because you've got to make the government system work. You can't bring in your own system to say, we'll run the government system. So that is a quality support program where we started programming school too institute best practices in those schools so engage with the principals with the school leaders first with the state administration to tell them as to what we can do share our program with them and then talk to the school leaders to see you know how they would be willing to join this program some of whom will join then we run pilot programs and then we see more and more schools becoming part of this so this is just a transfer of best practices and what do you mean by best practices here actually things which are happening in normal schools we don't happen in government schools Simple things like the library is working, the computer center is working, teachers come on time, parents get involved, community gets involved, the toilets work, there's a games and sports period, there are children who are involved, there are teachers who are responsible for various things, you form clubs in school, you take them for little outdoor activities, etc, etc. You get them interested in science. So all things which are normal to us in regular schools and which are not happening in government schools, bring that interest. And then look at, Competency enhancements. Right? Never go and tell teachers we'll train you. But if teachers say that we require training in this, this area, then you organize that kind of training. Right? Schools don't have enough teachers, then you take it up with state administration that why do you know the school needs a science teacher? This class 10 doesn't have a you know, physics teacher, doesn't have a math teacher. Make sure that you know the vacancies get filled, make sure that parent-teacher meetings happen, right? And these are little things that even the Delhi government focused on. That's the reason why we start work with them because. The mindset and approach was the same, that you've got to support the government schools to make them work. And it has to become part of their life. The school has to become a matter of pride for the children, for the teachers, for the communities. Right? And that's how it'll carry on becoming good. So it's a its a process of revival. It's a process of resurrection. It's a process of you know, ingraining what is right and what is wrong. And gradually getting all teachers to become part of it. Today, I mean, a lot of teachers, actually couldn't care because they get salary. No one can take away their salary. They're doing so many things outside the school. I and mean, in, in the villages, you'll find a lot of proxy teachers coming in in school. So, uh, and uh, so you earn 80000 a month, but you pay 5000 a month to some youngster who's standing in for you. And the school administrative setup is such that, you know, no one can be there everywhere. Tomorrow, when you have technology, you have, you know, uh, cameras in each classroom and all, I don't know, things may change. But, you know, there are... There are huge issues which are there you know, that can only be set right by the local people. In you know why shouldn't why shouldn't the sarpanch in every village you know, be proud of the school that she or he has and try and make that the best school in the country, the best government school in the country. That's kind of motivation which needs to come. And this quality improvement program, while a foundation may do hundred thousand schools, some may do hundred schools. You know individuals can do one school. Small you know, factories can do two schools. Like you have factories in a village and then you have a government school there. Instead of you, a factory setting up a school for its own employees' children, why not work with the government school to make that good enough for your employees' children to study there and get quality education? Easier said than done, but this is the kind of stuff that we need to see happening all across if we want to bring about systemic change.
2: Great. During our research uh, preparing for this interview, we came across a statement that you had made, which is which goes like this: "I will not allow what is not in my control to prevent me from doing what is in my control." So, how do you apply this principle in the work that you do? Can you can you share some examples with us?
0: Yeah, really, surely one one this 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 uh, you know phrase is not mine; it belongs to a very dear friend of mine, <laughs> and uh, he's the one who shared it with me. Yeah. His name is Yawar Beg, and he's a he's a great guy. He's a HR professional, we were colleagues once and he writes books and he's a trainer and you know he lectures in Hyderabad, between Hyderabad and the US. So he all told me that and it's stuck. You know, it just says that, you know, we, so whenever we say that, you know, like when I talk about the school, you know, people say, no, I can't do this because, you know, the government doesn't support. You know, I can't do this because my neighbor is not doing this because the policeman doesn't help me. You know, There are so many things which we blame on the system and we say because the system doesn't support us and we can't make a difference. And what this says is that at least why not do what you can do, right? So, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, the the other day, here where I live in Noida, we have a lot of U-turns created. And there are enough and more cars and motorbikes which will take the wrong U-turn because they want to save 500 meters and not take the next U-turn. I stopped at one to top guys to say, why, why are you doing this? You know, Why don't you go there? Some people turn on and abuse you. Some listen to you that it's only half a kilometer and you'll save your own life. You might meet with an accident. You might, you're might. creating trouble for yourself. Then I saw a police car standing there and I got those guys down and spoke to them and they said, we've tried it. It never works. So I had to give them the same lecture. I said, just because you tried it once and it doesn't work, even if you chain two people out of 10, you're making a difference. We need to continue to make a difference. Right? When, we are, when we are managing garbage, throwing garbage, that my neighbor is not throwing it, but why should I throw it right? So this is for those little things that we can do. Of course, you can take it to systemic changes also. Right. There are things which are in your control. So it depends on where you are. Right. If I was a secretary somewhere you know, in the government of India, I have much more powers to change. If I'm just a simple individual living in, in a flat or a house in a locality, there's only that much I can do within my. If I'm the president of RWA, I can do so much more. So within your own sphere of influence, right? There are things you can do, and there are things which will go wrong in case you don't do those things, right? So at least do the things that you can do, right? And don't say that I must wait for things to change before I start doing what is right. So that 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 is clearly the you know. Uh, uh, the underlying current of the of this phrase. If I can make a difference, why won't I do it? Someone, you know. By the way, when I, when I stopped the car, my daughter and wife were in the car with me. They got very upset with me. That right? why are you doing it? If this guy turned around and hit you, what would you have done? You're old. You know, you think you're a hero. I mean, there's that. So, so you have to undergo all that, right? But I felt that it needed to be done, so I did that, and uh, and I think everywhere where we believe something is wrong and we can set right each one of us must step out and do a bit
1: i just want to spend some time on uh, you know you talked about this government schools and adopting or you know not the word adoption but best practices sharing uh, so uh, what stops it from scaling it because you know what i see all the time is somebody uh, somebody does it in One state in a couple of hundred schools. Uh, But just to give you a perspective, we've got 50 million children uh, in the elementary uh, education in our country. Okay. There are close to one and a half million schools, out of which probably 1.2 million are government schools. So the scale of the problem is of a very, very high nature. And what I also see is that the enrollment to the dropout rates are also very, very high, you know. So so clearly the challenges are infrastructure, the challenges are how do you build a momentum for this and uh, and funnily enough, uh, what I also read in one of the reports is that, uh, you know, close to 30-35% of the children in standard 3-4, even though they are attending the school, they don't know how to read a text. Okay. So clearly, the ch- clearly these are the challenges, and therefore, how would you change it? And give me a, give me some examples of in the Satyabharati schools, and you know, in some of the collaborations that you did for best practices. What do you think are you know, if you were to say, pick up these five six, uh, you know, uh, you know, drivers to change it. What would you think we need to do it because it's a huge problem, right? So yeah, yeah. So so one, you know, uh,
0: Swami the. The magnitude of a problem because of COVID has now gone up manifold, huh, by the way. No one is talking about it. But the fact that for close to two years children haven't been to school, whatever school, right? I mean, we really don't know the enormity of the problem that we're going to have to deal with. In terms of learning levels, in terms of the psych of children, in terms of you know how they are how you're going to you know bring them up to speed. We've spoken a lot about online learning. Schools say we are doing online learning, but we all know what, you know, how much of impact online learning will have and would have had, right? And how many people have access? And if they, even if they have access, how many people, how many kids have actually been serious, right? So, so I've seen this happening because I, am involved with the school still. You know, I'm, I'm chairman of Modern School, Barakamba Road. We know what's happening in that school. I know I have grandchildren, I have kids all around, you know, and it's a it's a, I mean. Uh, it's, it's frightening, actually. So, you know, we, this is something that we'll have to cope with as a nation and as people, right? But leaving that aside, how do you scale? I think that's a very relevant question that you answered. I mean, 1,000 schools in the context of 1.2, 1.3 million government schools, nothing, right? How do you scale? The only way that you can scale is by institutionalizing these processes. Right? How do you institutionalize? Is by creating champions from within the government system. So while you may work with 200 schools in a state, 50 in you know 10 districts, 500 schools, right? But then there has to be a desire on the part of that administration to create a team from within who will then take this to every government school because so this has to become a movement. It cannot. I don't believe there is any private entity. While I keep saying that people need to get involved, we can do that, but that'll still be a drop in the ocean. But the government system needs to change. Someone. Somewhere needs to take cognizance of this fact. Like, I mean, you need to give it a thought. Every government officer needs to send the child to a government school. Will that work? Is it doable? Mm-hmm. I would believe that that's that's possibly the simplest answer. You know? The SHO's son and daughter go to a school. I'll be damned if that school is not a great school. Yeah, <laughs> you know. How can that school not be a good school? Admit. First year, it may take a couple of months. It may take a year. It may take two. Years. But he will, between him and the civil administration guy, they will ensure that they get all the bloody government resources to pump into, you know, into that school to make that school worthwhile because their child is going to that school. So, so somewhere, something, some out of the box solution has to come. You know, we're already too late. We're already too late because children—they're missing education. That. Huge population of children is actually has actually lost the opportunity. They've got to catch up. When are we going to stop playing catch up? When are we going to give the kids a fair chance in life? So it's it is worrying. Yeah. It is something which should worry all of us. And, and I'm afraid to say that it does not seem to be worrying because I don't see this as part of any political political party's main plank of campaigning. To say that I will improve government schools I probably don't fetch them votes or that government schools need to function right? Or I'll make sure that all every children every child in this country gets quality education. that's one of the you know pillars of my campaign of my party of the government that I will run. No, that's not happening and why is it not happening? and if you can't fix primary education and school education why talk about higher education? In any case, the people who become eligible for higher education are very small. Right? That needs to be fixed also. That's a different issue altogether, how the higher education functions in our country. But at least basics to go.
1: So one of the things uh, you know, some uh, you know, some of the uh, experts recommend is almost like saying, uh, take these government schools and build something called a learning achievement contract model which is like saying, you know, uh, put something together where, uh, you know, you uh, you look at some kind of a learning outcome, look at incentivizing the government uh, teachers, uh, you know, build, a, uh, you know, a, a different pathway to actually doing this. Uh, have you seen any global examples of how uh, this is done? And is there anything that we can pick up from there and adopt it here?
0: You know, there are many, many such examples. I mean, in the USA, there's something called charter schools. The UK has got a model also of stuff like that. You know, one is making changes in the in the in the curriculum and in the methodology, etc. Right? That can all happen, but for all that to happen, the schools need to work. We're dealing with a different problem altogether where by and large the schools are not working. Right? They need to be the, the head teacher, the teachers need to be made accountable. Children must come to school. We must have proper attendance. All teachers must be in school. Teaching, learning must start happening. It's only then can you start working on upgrading quality. Right? How can you work on quality when the majority of your schools are dysfunctional? So my point is there. I mean, all this is very good. I mean, is there anything wrong with the national education policy? I don't think so. Everyone criticize everything. There are some parts which can be changed, cannot be changed. Each one has a different view in education, right? But for all that to happen, Right? You need to ensure that the schools are running and running well. So I'm now talking more about administration in those schools. Right? And then we'll get on to the next step.
2: Can you please talk us through the current challenge that you have taken up, uh, which is the air pollution action group? Uh, you know, What are the problems that you're trying to solve there? Can you please talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, surely. You know, I, mean, I, th- I thought I should be retiring finally, but here I am for the last two years plus now part of air pollution action group you know which is a foundation set up by the founder is a gentleman called ashish Dhawan, and uh, he was very passionate about this and uh, spoke to me so i have another colleague called mohit byotra and we three of us spent about two months actually looking at the problem you know talking to various people experts in the country outside the country seeing what's happening all over and realizing that this is a huge problem which is affecting all of us we are all breathing this air people in and around the ncr we are much worse off people in bombay you have good days and bad days because you still have the benefit of being you know on on the seaside there are people you know in places which are you're lucky because of your geography right but majority of people are breathing air which is actually killing them right it's a it's it's a
1: huge huge
0: issue huge population. it's a huge problem for and and children are impacted I mean if you look at the children you know the, if you look at statistics you know, the number of children who have a lung problem who have asthma who have breathing issues and all in a Delhi and NCR and you know in North Indian towns it's unbelievable we can't we can't let that happen right it's a problem which has many dimensions there's no one solution right the government has taken cognizance the government has been talking about it the government has something called the national clean air plan it's called ncap right based on that every city has an action plan a city action plan right there are pollution control boards which are which are looking at these things there are major sources of pollution right this air pollution only one part in the entire environment issue right when you talk environment there's so much more you know water etc It is that you know but what are the major causes of air pollution? Right, so there are the and whether twenty percent, twenty five percent, twenty two percent that depends from city to city and study to study. But clearly, you know, there's vehicular emissions, right? There are industrial emissions. There are thermal power plants. There is uh, construction and demolition dust, right? There is uh, the uh, waste disposal, garbage burning. Right? There's household, what is called household air pollution where you're using non-clean fuels for cooking.
2: Right?
0: And then what is seasonal in terms of North India is what is called stubble burning, which happens in Punjab and Haryana, where rice fields are burnt to actually get it ready for the next crop to be sold. Right? So how do you handle all that? So there are lots of things which are policy issues, right? Where government is working on it. Some policy changes have happened you have seen that you know come into Euro 6 norms. We are looking at cleaner fuels. We are looking at electrification. All that is a long process, right? We are looking at diversion of vehicles around highways and expressways. Right? We are looking at orders have been passed. There are life to vehicles, etc. There are a lot of debate on that. But you know, in like in NCR, diesel vehicles more than 10 years cannot fly. Petrol vehicles more than 15 years cannot fly, right? But they'll go somewhere else and fly. Right? So we need to find some solutions to all that. But that is one part of it. A lot of research has happened. We said, what can an organization like ours do? So we said, how do we create a space for ourselves? We said, we will help government in implementing their plans. We realized that while there are city action plans, and national clean air plan, not enough is happening around implementation, operationalizing, and monitoring. So we said, let's go with this to say that we will support government by providing project management units. And help them in implementing this around doable items. Right? I'll not allow what is not in my control, right? So we said we'll work on what is called dispersed sources, right? So dispersed sources are everywhere, right? So you know, dust here, broken road here, traffic jam in a particular point, you know, unauthorized construction happening, uh, brick kilns burning when they're not supposed to burn, right? And see. What are garbage burning happening unauthorized so how can we stop that so what can the municipal corporation and the local administration do to identify these kind of sources and stop them so can that address at least 20-25% of uh, the issue we felt it it can and that's how we started work and we started offering our pro bono services to state governments so in two and a half years we're happy to say that today we are we have uh, project teams working in support of uh, the city of Delhi with every municipal corporation. We did a pilot with South, with South Delhi Municipal Corporation. And today, we are with South Delhi, East Delhi, North Delhi and the New Delhi Municipal Corporation. And our teams are there. So we're carrying out surveys, identifying such spots, working along with them. We also created a lot of training toolkits for you know junior level employees to sensitize them, to make them understand what all this is all about. We also created a dashboard for monitoring, of course, the Delhi government has its own dashboard, but people who don't have, we provide this dashboard to them for use to actually, you know, so that everyone can see where the problem is and it can be tracked and traced and monitored. Right? Plus, we have young kids, bright kids, you know, management degrees, engineers, you know, professionals, people from uh, from industry, people who have worked in the social sector want to come here who are working to, with the government. Providing, you know, the management skills in terms of how to do it. Every DC has got so many things. If you look at their world, this air pollution part is a very small part of the world. But how to bring that onto the forefront, how to get their attention, and how to get them to divert resources and dedicate resources to make sure that we can address it together. So while we've done this in Delhi, we've started work in Lucknow in UP. We've got an MOU with the Bihar government started work in Patna, we'll be doing two more cities. We hope to extend it to other cities in UP and Bihar also. And with the Punjab government, we've got PMUs which work along with them to help in bringing down reduction in stubble burning by engaging with farmers. Many things around that, how they can get the implements, the wherewithal, the machines, how to create a software for that, how to get farmers to to interact with you, to tell them pluses and minuses, how to create communication uh, clips. With the government will run telling farmers what is right what is wrong you know why they should not burn etc etc so all that for two years we worked with Punjab government unfortunately due to the ground situation we can't say that we've had a lot of success but our degree of engagement from last year to this year has increased phenomenally but because of the farmers agitation other political issues i'm not sure we've been able to make too much of an impact and the suffering will still be there. Right? but this work will carry on. So so our focus is to work with the government. While we have a research team, we don't reinvent research. We look at what is available and see how we can use it for our work. Right? We're currently setting up a project management unit with the Central Pollution Control Board to help them monitor the implementation of ANCAP across the country. So these little steps have been taken. I do believe that, you know, We'll of course now look for funders also because the project has become huge. So far, ashish is funding it out of his own money, right? We have some other funders too, but you know, I think the, the program is going to multiply. We'll have people all over, you know, and uh, and it'll be in a small way. Our intent was we said, if we can bring down the level of pollution by thirty to forty percent in 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 three to five years, five years so, we are on the right track, and we put in systems in place within the government. Right? Maybe a lot more will happen if we can handle the macro issues, right? And if that brings about a change, right? But it's something which needs to happen and and our work is there that we said we will assist and support government. We'll work along with government. We are not doing, you know, uh, we're not doing any advocacy. We're not criticizing government, right? We are working as part of the government teams and enhancing their ability to handle this issue. Simply put, that's what we're doing.
1: This is quite amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the stuff that uh, you spoke about is not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. So uh, uh, here are some closing questions uh, that we wanted to throw you with. Uh, uh, I'll start with mine. What does the word successful mean to you? Um, I think I think successful
0: means different things to different people. Right? But for me, successful means when you, when you believe that, you know, uh, you left behind a legacy that you can be proud of, of the work that you've done. I think it's immeasurable. I'll just give you an example that, you know, I worked in the travel industry for many years. right? So now when I see so many of my colleagues, youngsters, people who joined as trainees with me and now who are CEOs and CEOs of organizations, when there are senior people who recount little things, that they say, sir, we, you did this and we learned this from you. I had this problem and you helped me solve that. Right? So I think... When you go now and you believe that people, you know, not because you're CEO, but they welcome you and they value you still, right? And they ring you up for advice, whether it's from the army or from the industry. Right? I would believe that uh, what you've left behind is a legacy. If that is positive and you made a difference in people's lives, that that really is success. Right. All
2: right. My next question, my next question, uh, Colonel Chadda, is uh, what are some of the books that have influenced you the most in your life? Wow.
0: Let me make an honest admission that, uh, as far as that is concerned, I'm I'm an unpar. I've, I read a lot. I enjoy my reading. I read a lot of fiction, right? But uh, I think I've learned from people. I can't say that you know there is a book which has changed my life. Right? There are lots of books I've enjoyed. Lots of books from which I've learned a lot. Right? But but uh, you know, but I mean I've worked with various people within the armed forces and outside and learn from them and and this is both both senior and junior it's it's not only and and you know uh, also your peer group so learnings are from everywhere so i mean i just can't say that you only learn from a boss you learn from from so many people and so many instances right great
1: uh, my question to you is uh, what's the one piece of advice uh, best piece of advice uh, anyone has ever given you
0: Thing. I've got so much advice and there's been so much good advice I mean, to, to pick out the best piece of advice is a, is a tough one I think.
1: but but tell us the top top one or two that come to your uh, you know come to you as you speak
0: you know I think I think clearly that uh, uh, it's don't believe that there is anything that you can do that will ever be hidden so you need to be transparent you, know? you can never believe that you will make a make a fool of people right so that tells you that you got to be honest you have got to be transparent right and uh, you can't duck issues you can't hide things beyond a point right so i think that that is really uh, because i believe that you know that is critical i tell people that you know always remember that uh, you know, your your reputation far outlives you wherever you've been. Right? It's not about how, what results you achieve. It's not about what you did for the company. It's not about how much money you made. It's about what they remember about you as a human being
2: and as an individual, which is most important.
1: Fantastic.
2: If you could invite four guests for your dream dinner, who would they be and why?
0: And yeah, these are, I mean, for a guy like me at my stage in life, uh, no, I, I, I really, you know, I would, I would enjoy dinner with. Uh, I mean, my dream dinner would be with my dearest friends or very close family, right? I honestly, I, you know, uh, no aspiration to do a, to a dream dinner with any celebrities or anyone, you know, because the uh,
1: one one other reason is no, we, no, we are new, you know. No, we are not even talking about celebrity. I think I, th- I think the fact that uh, you are talking about close friends and family itself is something that is uh, brilliant because I think, uh, you know, Vignesh introduced me to something which is called uh, how do you measure life, right, Vignesh? And uh, there, uh, it's a very interesting concept that he speaks about, which is uh, therefore, you know, the value systems are built around your family and uh, friends. So there's nothing wrong, uh, you know, with celebrity dinner, but I think... Uh, what you said makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, and, and, and you know, in the earlier days, you wanted to meet celebrities, you know, the media etc. was not like what it is today. Right? And you didn't have access to so much information. Then you know, you sit down with people, you get to hear them, you get to you know get gyan from them, you get to meet them, right? So, so understanding and, you know, getting information and all is not so much of a challenge nowadays. So that's maybe another reason why, you know, that aspiration and of course my age and life that you know, that uh, at this stage in life, you look at uh, what has real meaning for you.
2: Yeah. What would be the three or four things that you would recommend to an 18-year-old studying at a university today?
0: Wow, that's you know, it's surprising that you should ask me this question because we were struggling with it. I have a 15-year-old grandson, and my wife and I were talking, you know, and and we're looking at his peer group. And we're looking at you know how. How what are their priorities in life and how the world is changing? You know? And then of course you have now for you know, whatever it's worth, you know, what happened to Aryan Khan and you know the whole drug scene, etc. So I don't know how, how to give the advice, but I think you know, one I would say the advice, whether you're giving it to an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old, doesn't change. I mean, you know, be committed,
1: right?
0: Set your goals in life, right? Have fun. Do everything within limitations. Right? And have a code of conduct. Right? Be true to yourself. And remember that what is gained and what you achieve with hard work and by what you do yourself, right? that that is far better than something which comes easily to you. So, working hard, commitment, yet enjoying, Staying within boundaries and limits, right? because there are so many distractions. Right? Being true to yourself, and remember that you know each one of us has a responsibility not only to ourselves, but to our parents, who have hope on us, to our families, and to our communities. So always have that sense of responsibility, and never forget that you you can always achieve each one of us can make a difference, each one of us can be what we want to be.
1: That's absolutely brilliant. I think uh, it's so, so true and uh, amazing. Uh, so thanks a ton uh, Vijay. Uh, it was absolutely uh, brilliant talking to you. Uh, some of the points that you made on some foundational changes that needed to be done uh, in our uh, government education and uh, you know in schools and the work that you're doing on air pollution and uh, your your a- ability to kind of uh, you know drive this is something that is inspiring and thanks a ton for taking time and talking to us
0: thank you so much and i must also put on record you know i've been i've said this earlier i've been a very lucky guy so wherever i've been i've had fantastic teams i mean great teams who've actually you know helped me in in what i set out to do whether it was business whether it's you know the foundation that i worked in So I remain ever grateful to them because nothing would happen without your team. And that's what leadership is all about.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. For selected links and detailed show notes, visit www.contraminds.com slash blog. Follow ContraMinds on social media and let us know who you would like to see next on the podcast. If you are listening to ContraMinds on Apple Podcasts, do share your comments and give us a rating. We are keen to know what you are thinking. ContraMinds is also on YouTube. If you are listening to the podcast on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and stay up to date on all our releases. Thanks for listening and stay safe.